0: Today's show is brought to you by Bowery Boys Walks, our new walking tours that are taking the Bowery Boys podcast to the streets. Now, if you like this show, we're sure that you'll enjoy these walking tours that we're developing with some of the city's most knowledgeable and engaging professional tour guides. Head to BoweryBoysWalks.com and click on Tours. And you can see and book walking tours right now, including walking tours like Landmarks and Legends of Broadway, Ladies Mile and Cast Iron Architecture, and Murder and Mayhem in nineteenth century Noho. That's BoweryboysWalks.com. Get ready
3: to walk through time. This episode of the Bowery Boys is brought to you by City Running Tours. Looking for a unique way to explore New York City this holiday season? Wanting to stay fit, have fun, and not feel guilty eating all of those holiday treats? Well, tis the season to join City Running Tours and sweat and sightsee on a guided running tour of New York City. The City Running Tours team is passionate about the city and loves to explore it through running. Join one of their scheduled routes or customize your own personal experience. These sweat and sightsee tours are the ideal way to discover New York City's hidden neighborhoods. Jessica from Houston, Texas said, The first time I ever saw snow was on my running tour of Central Park. It couldn't have been planned more perfectly. Running with city running tours was the best part of my trip. These tours are also perfect for your next holiday corporate or social event. Visit slash New York City to book your city running tour today. Plus, use the coupon code Bowery Boys, that's one word, Bowery Boys to receive 10% off your next tour. Episode 304 of the Bowery Boys
0: The Miracle on Eldridge Street, the Eldridge Street Synagogue. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Boys. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And today we're heading deep into the Lower East Side and Chinatown, just south of Canal Street on Eldridge Street, a block that today is lined with 19th century tenements and apartment buildings, most of which are home to small shops and restaurants that are typical of
3: Chinatown. But this block is also home to a jaw-dropping beauty that dates from the 1880s. The Eldridge Street Synagogue, today home to the Museum at Eldridge Street, the only remaining marker of the old Jewish Lower East Side that's open to the public.
0: It is an extraordinary structure, architecturally speaking, and also in terms of its
3: significance to the history of the Lower East Side. The synagogue is a sumptuous Moorish revival masterpiece with 67 stained glass windows, a magnificent barrel vaulted ceiling, intricately carved woodwork, and a gloriously eclectic facade. It is truly magical inside.
0: And in terms of its role in the neighborhood's history, this was the very first that was built during the massive wave of Jewish immigration in the late 19th century. The vast majority of Jews who were arriving during this immigration wave were coming from today's Russia, Poland, Lithuania, and other Eastern European countries. And they practiced, as we'll talk about later in the show, Orthodox Judaism. This structure tells
3: their story. And yet it wouldn't be open to the public today. In fact, it wouldn't be open at all if it wasn't for a group of concerned New Yorkers who came together to save it. It was on the verge of literally collapsing. Some parts of it had collapsed.
0: Roberta Brandis Gratz, uh, one of the founders of the Eldridge Street Project, which was a group that was formed to save the synagogue in the 1980s, wrote of the building's condition in December of 1982. She wrote, quote, "...pigeons roosted in the attic and flew in and out of missing windows. Dust was so thick on the pews that you could carve your initials in it. Water was pouring through one corner of the roof. Prayer books were left strewn about. Little objects that worshippers long ago had left behind, including crystal drinking glasses, were randomly scattered." Pieces of stained glass from broken
3: windows were everywhere. So this is a story about the origin of this synagogue, but also how it was restored. How did it fall into disrepair in the first place? And even more importantly, how was it brought back to life? So join us
0: as we explore the rich history of the Eldridge Street Synagogue, the miracle on Eldridge Street. So, Greg, in terms of situating the listener here, I mean, we know that we're going down to the Lower East Side to Eldridge Street, south of
3: Canal. We are indeed the Eldridge Street Synagogue at 12 Eldridge Street, which was completed in 1887. Okay. This absolutely beautiful Moorish or exotic revival style building here, a really one-of-a-kind piece of architecture in the neighborhood. So we are, we are going to a specific place. We will be spending most of our time here, but I'm actually going to situate both the congregation mm-hmm. that built this synagogue and even the world that they inhabited, the 19th century Jewish life in New York City. And you said that the building is unlike anything else in the
0: neighborhood in terms of its architecture. Yes. And it stands out as well on the block that it's located on, it's, right? It, there yeah. are tenement
3: buildings. Well, there's even like, a Buddhist temple just a, mm-hmm. a couple doors down. And don't forget, at the end of the block, at the southern
0: end, you basically run into the Manhattan Bridge. Yes. It's a like, bustling
3: neighborhood, needless to say.
0: A, a bridge that did not exist when the synagogue was opened.
3: We're actually going to begin our story here by walking underneath the Manhattan Bridge. So it's less than a five-minute walk if you're to walk down East Broadway. And on St. James Place, you're going to find a very small cemetery, a 17th-century cemetery with a, a, about 100 tombstones total. This is one of the oldest places in Manhattan. This ground was purchased and first used, get this, in 16. 82 as the cemetery for New York's very first Jewish congregation. This is the burial ground of the congregation Sharit Israel, or the remnants of Israel. Believe it or not, the congregation here can trace their lineage to the very first Jewish immigrants to arrive in New Amsterdam in 1654, 365 years ago. Wow. And this
0: is during the time of Dutch New Amsterdam presided over by Director General Peter Stuyvesant. Yes. Who was no friend to the Jewish community. But the, but the cemetery that's located here, this is the same spot where their first synagogue was located?
3: Oh, no, actually, well, I mean, think about where New Amsterdam was and colonial New York it was, was. south of here. Very, This was very north of the city center. The very first Jewish residents of New York all lived... Just around the area of a small street which is almost no longer there. It's just a little sliver of a street today called Mill Street. And it was here that the very first dedicated synagogue in New York City was built in the year 1730. Before that,
0: where had they been congregating?
3: In their in their homes. You know, they didn't have a dedicated place until this time, which meant which which means, of course, that there were enough jewish residents in new york by this time to actually maintain a synagogue and where had many of these people come from what were their origins well this is a really key distinction for us to make right now actually it's 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 interesting because many were actually of spanish or portuguese origin or from the colonies of those countries so the synagogue actually followed what we call sephardic traditions of Judaism. Now, after 1730, so after the synagogue was constructed, and of course, here on out for the rest of the history, most of the newly arriving Jewish immigrants would be Ashkenazi or from German, Russian, Eastern European, essentially Central and Eastern Europe. Now, let's jump ahead in the story, actually, 100 years to the year 1825. The year the Erie Canal opened. (laughs) Yes. We've skipped past the Revolutionary War, start of the 19th century here. The city is booming. Yes. Not only were there more Jewish residents living in the city, but there were naturally more of the Ashkenazi tradition. Meanwhile, as you can imagine, they still had that one synagogue down on Mill Street, and it was completely deteriorating. And anyway, the city was growing north of it. The city was on the march. They were no longer living around just this one small street. It was all of these factors put together that led to one of the most important moments in American Jewish history, which is interesting, and that is the first split. In 1825, a purely Ashkenazi-centered faction would become the Congregation Benai Jethroon, or the Son of the Upright. To quote from the author Deborah Dash Moore in her brilliant, amazing book, Jewish New York, quote, Sharit Israel was New York's first synagogue, but B'nai Jeshurun was the first of many new synagogues. Bolstered by increasing numbers of immigrants, congregations split and split again as egalitarian republicanism and rampant congregationalism blossomed in the city.
0: And when she writes bolstered by increasing numbers of immigrants, she's referring to the first wave of new Jewish immigrants who arrived in the city in the 1830s and 40s and
3: 50s, mostly from Germany. Right. Uh, by 1859, in fact, there were 40,000 Jewish New Yorkers and most were of Central European descent or you know, mostly from Germany. These new arrivals who came in just a handful of decades here, helped develop a new Jewish identity and formed the first real Jewish spaces in places like Five Points and, of course, later the Lower East Side. And eventually even in wealthier districts as German Jewish arrivals became more prosperous. So it's in that expansion that many new Jewish congregations were formed.
0: Well, that makes rational sense that you have people coming in from all over and they're bringing in different influences, they're splintering off into different congregations. Yeah. And meanwhile, you have the old timers who have made it and they're moving out of the neighborhood. There's a lot
3: going on. Yeah, I mean, it's the American way, actually. By 1860, you had 27 different Jewish congregations alone in New York. And there were, you know, it was all sorts of different reasons for that. There were people following particular rabbis who had moved to New York. There were just people gathering based on the region of the world that they had come from but broadly speaking the main schism here would be between what they would call reform judaism and orthodox judaism
0: and i'm going to assume here that by orthodox you mean that they're following strictly th- th- their tradition as yes. opposed to reform who is changing a bit uh, modernizing a bit In their new land,
3: yes, uh, being influenced by an American way of life, while Orthodox adhered closer to those original teachings. Now, I don't want to get sidetracked here because you know I this is my wheelhouse. I love this stuff actually, but in terms of synagogues and congregations, Reform Judaism in New York in the nineteenth century is. We're going to choose one congregation to represent them in this story, and that is the congregation Emmanuel, or God is with us, known today as the Temple Emmanuel, which evolved from a small congregation in the Lower East Side to become one of New York's largest Jewish congregations.
0: And you said this was a
3: reformed congregation? Yes, a leading reformed congregation.
0: Emmanuel. And what were they reforming? What's indicative of, the, of these reforms?
3: Well, I mean, eventually be quite a list, actually. I can imagine this was shocking for many. For instance, ceremonies in English. They got rid of the prayer shawls. Men didn't have to wear hats. They replaced the bar mitzvah with a confirmation ceremony. And biggest of all they introduced family seating. Now, men and women could worship together with children in the same place.
0: And and we will be contrasting all of those items, really, with the Eldridge Street Synagogue, which yeah. is Orthodox here in a minute. And, and where was this Reform Synagogue located on the Lower
3: East Side? No, th- well, by 1854, they actually moved. And I, this is what I find very interesting because a lot of synagogues actually did this in the mid-19th century, which was to actually move into a pre-existing building, and in many cases, into an abandoned Christian church. And that's precisely what they did in 1854, when they moved into a Baptist church on West 12th Street near Union Square. Wow, Union
0: Square in the 1850s. That is (laughs) really far from the Lower East
3: Side in many ways by the 1850s. That's like a world away. (laughs) It it is. And in fact, many kind of wanted it it to be a a world away, right? They were trying to assimilate more into New York culture. In fact, by the mid-19th century, a large number of secular Jewish New Yorkers rarely went to synagogue at all. You know, many were celebrating their Jewish identity in other ways, like joining social groups like B'nai B'rith, which also formed in the Lower East Side in 1843.
0: They were also adapting to other aspects of American of the American lifestyle. For example, the work week, the American work week was six days a week. You got Sunday off. You had to work on Saturday, which for Jews who were observing the Sabbath, that made it very difficult in many ways. But the Reformed tradition here now allowed Jews to work on Saturday mm-hmm. as well. So they, they, that's just an example of how things were starting to change. But you're saying that, that most of these Reformed Synagogues Mm -hmm. were located out of the Lower East Side because that population
3: was moving out of town,
0: was moving out of this neighborhood, moving uptown. Yeah. But meanwhile, in the Lower East Side, immigration continued,
3: arrivals continued, and most of them were Orthodox. And that's where our story is going to take us to Eldridge Street. And thanks to one group of worshipers we'll be following here, Congregation Beth Hamadrash. Now, they formed in July of 1852, founded by the rabbi Abraham Joseph Ash, for the purposes of forming a congregation for those from Russia, Poland, and other places in Eastern Europe, which, by the way, 1852 – makes them the first congregation in the United States for people from this particular area of the world. Because up until this time, Jews had been mostly arriving from Germany. They comprised most of the Jewish population during this period. So this was really extraordinary. And they were called, you said, Beth Hamidrash. Mm -hmm. What does that name mean? House of Study, they were devoted to the study of Jewish law, had an impressive library of books, actually. One might even call this an intellectual orthodoxy. They were even highly sought out in other Jewish communities throughout the United States as being experts on Jewish law. And where did they meet? Where did they put all these books? Yes, I write The books and scrolls. Well, in the early years, they actually met in various places around the Lower East Side and Old Halls. At one point, even above a saloon on Pearl Street. In fact, in 1856, they would take a page from what, Temple Emanuel had done. And in that year, 1856, Beth Hamadrash moved into a Welsh church uh, at 78 Allen Street, and it was actually a good home for a while here, for almost th- three decades, and into the 1880s. But of course, by that time, the congregation would need a much bigger home.
0: Wait, you just jumped into the 1880s, which yeah. is really like the big kickoff of this massive wave of immigration that would bring millions of people into the city. So, And I'm assuming many of them were also Orthodox Jews from Russia and today's Poland
3: and Lithuania and other countries. Yeah, hundreds of thousands of immigrants from this area of the world, from, you know, this group had been formed to teach immigrants from this area of the world. Now here comes hundreds of thousands fleeing the pogroms of southwestern Russia, to occupy the Jewish spaces that were already made here by the German Jewish people who had preceded them, and of course made this the world's largest Jewish community.
0: In fact, between 1880 and 1924, that's 44 years but that major wave of immigration, there would be about one and a half million Yiddish-speaking Ashkenazi Jews who settled here on the Lower East Side.
3: So that gives a very good motivation for wanting to move into a bigger home. But they had a, they had a couple others that I think are, are pretty important here. In 1878, an elevated railroad was a- erected along Allen Street, the 2nd ah, Avenue yes. L, which covered up Allen Street and made life here in the synagogue, as you could imagine, extremely noisy and extremely dark all of a sudden. But while that's happening, now do you remember Temple Emmanuel that I talked about Mm -hmm. earlier? And they were by Union Square in 1868. I mean, that congregation had grown exponentially. And so in 1868, they built the most extraordinary synagogue in the United States at that time a Moorish style synagogue up at Fifth Avenue and 43rd Street.
0: Fifth Avenue in Midtown in 1868, Mm -hmm. which is like really the heart. Of New York social scene,
3: yeah, I mean high society <laughs> by all those wealthy families. In fact, it was across the street from the home of Boss Tweed. So, but the point is, these showy houses of worship, this beautiful synagogue, was raising the social profile of Reformed Jewish people. The leaders of Beth Hamadash knew that they wanted their congregation to expand. And, you know, they also saw a larger synagogue as raising their profile within the Orthodox community. So they decided that they needed a, a beautiful new home themselves. So, what'd they do? How'd they get away from the
0: shadow of the elevated?
3: Well, luckily by that point, there were a great number of, of wealthy New Yorkers who actually part of this congregation. They merged with a smaller congregation and renamed themselves Kahal Adath Jeshurun, or Community of the People of Israel. They raised money and bought some lots at 12, 14, and 16 Eldred Street cleared the land, and on November 14th, 1886, they held a huge parade and a ceremony in honor of laying the foundation stone. And
0: impressively, the new synagogue would open just the next year.
3: Well, can you give us a basic description of the synagogue as it might have looked on opening day eighteen eighty seven
0: Well, unfortunately, it looks very much like it looks today good yes <laughs> uh, it's a it's impressive it's very, very large, uh, which makes it still stand out on that block. It stands seventy feet tall at its peak, which means that it was really much larger than anything else that stood around it in eighteen eighty seven as you mentioned, the style is referred to as Moorish Revival and is constructed mostly in a kind of beige brick, although they have a lot of you know, fancy terracotta ornamentation going on. Plus, there's some stonework and there's some
3: beautiful carved wooden doors. But I must confess... Actually, when you see it for the first time as you're kind of walking down the street, one may not even realize that it's a synagogue at all. It does kind of look like a like maybe a Greek Orthodox church or something like that.
0: Well, I mean, you'd be forgiven if you just sort of glanced at it quickly for thinking that it is, yeah, a, a Christian church or like, you know, if you just blink, it kind of looks like a mini Notre Dame because you see that a giant rose style window and even, you know, even other elements of Gothic architecture. And by the way, it shouldn't be a big surprise to learn that the, the architects of the church were actually Catholic, brothers Peter and Francis Herter, who had recently arrived in the U.S. from Germany.
3: I also saw a description as exotic revival was another name, but Moorish revival, what is specifically Moorish about it?
0: Well, when you really focus on it, you can't help noticing that there are like horseshoe shaped arches, there are keyhole shaped windows all over the facade, You know, this was a popular style at the time for synagogues here in New York and throughout the country. And that's because this Moorish style reflected, reminded people of a time during the Middle Ages when a a sort of golden era when Jews and Christians and Muslims coexisted peacefully in Spain. So so they were, you know, looking back with nostalgia on -hmm. this golden era.
3: This was clearly not an unknown style for synagogues. In fact, Temple Emmanuel, which had been opened 20 years before, was in this style. Right. And by the way, we should mention that that building, um, that
0: Temple Emmanuel, would remain standing until 1926, when it would be sold and demolished and replaced, but it would move, of course, but it would be replaced by an office building that's still standing there today, and on the ground floor of which stands an Urban Outfitters. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's at that corner, the northeast corner, of 43rd and 5th.
3: The congregation, Emmanuel, Mm -hmm. of course, they have a beautiful, stunning synagogue up on the Upper East Side. And here at Eldridge Street, there's like no shortage of Jewish symbolism all over the place here.
0: Oh, on the facade. If you Mm -hmm. just look closely, you'll see that there are many stars of David that are carved into the doors, into the wooden doors, but also present in the stained glass in that giant rose window. Then there's a lot of like symbolism in the numbers of things on that facade, the number of times that things repeat. For example, and this is according to the book Beyond the Facade, A Synagogue, A Restoration, A Legacy, which was written about the synagogue by Larry Bortnicker. He, he points out that there are three bays representing the three patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The four doors, recall the four matriarchs. Then there's a cluster of five windows that refer to the five books of Moses, and so on and so forth. And
3: all the symbolism is absolutely beautiful. Uh, what are we finding once we go inside.
0: Well, in a minute, of course, we are literally going to go down to the Eldridge Street Synagogue and to visit it in person. So I don't want to give too much away, but let's just say that the the steps lead up into the main doors. Now there 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 are four doors. So the two central doors were for men and boys um who could, you know, sit downstairs. They led directly into the main sanctuary. The other two doors were for women and girls who would head inside and up the staircases to the balcony, a balcony which stretches along three sides of the sanctuary looking down. But regardless of whether you're going into the ground floor of the sanctuary or up in the b- balcony, it's
3: simply awe-inspiring when you walk inside. It's almost impossible to describe really how beautiful it is. It's so it's so ornate. And it's
0: so tall, Mm -hmm. for one thing. I mean, there's a barrel vaulted ceiling that is, is, you know, that stands 50 feet above you and includes this massive central dome. And then there are rows of intricately carved wooden pews stretching out before you. And the pews are arranged to face east toward Jerusalem. And on that eastern wall stands the wooden Torah Ark, which is this beautiful structure uh, that's carved from walnut wood And it's massive. It could hold up to 24 Torah scrolls. We'll be visiting that shortly. Right in front of that ark is a platform called the Amud, which is a carved wooden platform uh, that would be used during the services by cantor or by
3: lecturer. And isn't there another type of platform that's in the middle of the sanctuary? Yes, that's the bima, which
0: is a raised platform in the center of the sanctuary. It's from
3: that platform that the Torah is read. And during a, like a, a busy celebration, for instance, how many people could fit inside of the synagogue? Uh, I mean, I saw reports of many more than were legally allowed. To sure, be inside. I'm sure that happened. Yeah, I,
0: I, I saw that a thousand could squeeze in, 750 could fit inside comfortably, but you see reports of many, many more um, getting,
3: sort of pushing their way in to the sanctuary. And what day? Did it open exactly? And what was that? What was that party like on opening day?
0: Well, it was packed, and it was long. The service was long on on September fourth, eighteen eighty-seven, for the dedication. Um, this was covered by the press, both English language press and also the Jewish publications. Uh, wrote about the opening. In her book Landmark of the Spirit, the Eldridge Street Synagogue historian Annie Polland explains the event like this. Quote. According to the New York Herald, the dedication ceremony began with the chanting of psalms, after which Nathan Hutkoff, chair of the building committee, had the honor of lighting the eternal lights. The ceremony achieved its high point when Isidore Abrahams threw open the doors of the ark and the Torah was, quote, solemnly deposited in its crimson lined sanctuary. By the time President sender
3: Jamalowski
0: gave his closing address nearly four hours had passed.
3: And let's not step past the name that you dropped there, Senator Jarmulowski, mm-hmm. who is a major figure in the life of the Lower East Side during this period. And in the life of this congregation.
0: Mm-hmm. He was sort of the lay leader, the president of the congregation at the time that it made this big move. And he was a banker who had made millions of dollars through banking, but also in running passenger ships for Jews immigrating
3: to the United States. His own bank at 54 Canal Street, I think I can fairly say, is one of the most beautiful buildings in the Lower East Side. It's interesting that he has connections both to this bank building and to the synagogue, both buildings that are extremely ornate and quite unlike most structures in the Lower East Side.
0: And under his leadership, the, the congregation would truly flourish. And it was a diverse group of congregants from sort of all social stratas who practiced their orthodox faith here. According to an account that I read from 1892, there were, quote, lawyers, merchants, artisans, clerks, peddlers, and laborers, all who, who chose the Eldridge Street Synagogue To practice their faith. So socially diverse here. Yes. There was, however, one thing aside from their Orthodox faith that they had in common. And that is that most of them came from and lived in this neighborhood, the Lower East Side.
3: Well, I mean, how do we know that for sure that most of them are from the Lower East Side?
0: Well, I mean, they didn't like only let in people from the neighborhood, of course. It wasn't a requirement. But practically speaking, it was Almost required, because remember that this was an Orthodox synagogue, and it was only open to people who were strict observers of the Sabbath. And one requirement was that they couldn't take transportation to the synagogue for service on the Sabbath. They needed to walk there. So, you know, bridges weren't open. The the Williamsburg Bridge wouldn't open to 1903. The Manhattan Bridge opened in 1909. Sure, in 1883, the Brooklyn Bridge had opened, but that was really far away, you know. So so people
3: who were attending service there were walking there. So by design and by tradition, this was a Lower East Side congregation. And it would be a spiritual center
0: for Orthodox Jews for many, many decades. It would really flourish and have its own sort of golden era for about 40 years even as families were moving out of this neighborhood, they were following what you just mentioned to be kind of that well-established trajectory, you mm-hmm. know, of making it and moving out of the Lower East Side, others would come down, you know, they would take their place because there were just so many immigrants coming in. Um, they'd they'd take over their tenement apartments, they'd also take over their places and their pews here at the synagogue.
3: But as we already know, as we have already kind of spoiled earlier in the show, the synagogue itself would deteriorate and the congregation would rapidly decline here in the 20th century.
0: Right. And that would, in many ways, be a result of changes to the U.S. immigration laws. It was the cutting off of immigration or the the passing of the immigration law of 1924, and along with the national origins quota— that would really negatively impact the synagogue because it would just cut off all of the, the new arrivals who had been fueling this growth. And in the meantime, other Orthodox synagogues had opened in the neighborhood as well as across the new Williamsburg Bridge where there was a very vibrant Orthodox community. Mm-hmm.
3: And remained so, of course. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, here at the Eldridge Street Synagogue, there would continue to be services. There would continue to be a congregation...
0: But by the 1950s, that congregation, which was now quite a bit smaller, started meeting downstairs in the synagogue's Beth Midrash, which is a sort of downstairs study area, Mm -hmm. uh, because the upkeep of that giant main sanctuary had just become way too
3: costly for them. So they've this gigantic open space that is still very beautifully decorated is now pretty much closed off is unused and is certainly not being maintained this can't be very good for the condition of the whole place
0: they simply didn't have money you know to for regular maintenance for that space so they sealed off the sanctuary and over the next couple of decades it would fall that space would fall into disrepair in 1971, an NYU professor and an architectural historian named Gerald Wolfe convinced the sexton of the synagogue to allow him in to see that sanctuary, which then led to Wolfe bringing in walking tours, uh, which he did to sort of to get the synagogue some publicity. And then in the 1980s, one of the people on his walking tour was a man named William Josephson. He brought along... Roberta Brandis Gratz, who was a journalist and preservationist, and she's the one who wrote the quote that we read at the beginning of the the show. And in 1986, together, they formed the Eldridge Street Project uh, with the aim of, of saving this historic landmark.
3: Which brings us back to that quote from the very beginning. Pigeons roosted in the attic and flew in and out of missing windows. Dust was so thick on the pews that you could carve your initials in it. Water was pouring through one corner of the roof. Prayer books were left strewn about. Little objects that worshippers long ago had left behind, including crystal drinking glasses, were randomly scattered. Pieces of stained glass from broken windows were everywhere. When I first walked in, I took one look and said, if we don't save this building, we would have to reinvent it someday. The full story of Jews in America can't be told without this building. But how exactly do you save a building as particular as the Eldridge Street Synagogue? How do you even go about? Where do you begin saving something so essential to the neighborhood and to New York City? We'll get to that
0: miracle on Eldridge Street by heading there in person right after this.
3: Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be
1: combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
0: Walmart Plus members save on Meeting Up With Friends.
3: This episode of the Bowery Boys is brought to you by the ParCast Network's original podcast, Natural Disasters. You rarely see them coming. Unstoppable forces destined to cause destruction. Natural Disasters. Every Thursday, ParCast Network investigates Mother Nature's most devastating catastrophes in their original podcast, Natural Disasters. Tsunamis, tornadoes, and earthquakes are just the beginning. Each episode explores the historical impact of a monumental tragedy, analyzing the effect it had on the people and places involved, such as the 2010 earthquake that debilitated Haiti, claiming the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. Or the 1995 Chicago heat wave, which led to over 700 heat-related deaths during a five-day period. Or the volcanic eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 AD, which buried the ancient city of Pompeii and its people in ash. They're the stuff of nightmares, far more real than ever imaginable. Discover more in the ParCast original series, Natural Disasters. Visit ParCast.com natural disasters or search for natural disasters in the Spotify app and listen free today.
0: We are just south of Canal Street on Eldridge Street, and we are walking toward the, the Eldridge Street Synagogue, today's museum at Eldridge Street. And we see, look at that, Greg, the, the Manhattan Bridge rising rising at the end of the street.
3: Uh, we wanted to start outside to give some contrast here, because this is an exciting, busy street of Chinatown. Many of the businesses around here are Chinese-owned businesses, lots of signs in Chinese, Mm -hmm. Uh, so the street has taken on a much different identity, of course, than it had in the 1880s when the Eldritch Street Synagogue was first opened.
0: It's even changed since we lived here. Look, the cup (laughs) and
3: saucer there on the corner is now a pizza cafe. Oh, yes. Nothing stays the same in this city, alas. (laughs) But we're headed up towards the stairs right now. The beautiful Marsh
0: Revival a facade that we discussed earlier in the show of the synagogue
3: Now, the worshippers would have gone up the steps to go into the sanctuary directly, but we are actually going to go down um, into the museum at Eldridge Street. That's right. Uh, Chelsea Dowell, who's the director of public engagement is
0: waiting for us down there and she's going to take us on a quick tour of the museum. Let's head inside. Yes oh. Hi Chelsea Hello, Hello. Hello.
2: Hello, Chelsea. Welcome to the Museum at Eldridge Street. Thank you so much for having us. Come on in here. So where where are you taking us? So now we are in the Beit Midrash of the museum at Eldridge Street or of the historic Eldridge Street Synagogue. This is the lower level of the, the synagogue, where the congregation would have held more informal meetings, studies, things like that. And this is also the level of the building that the congregation remained in when they locked the upper floors. And, and that
0: is where we left off the story. And I believe that was in the 1950s when they moved the congregation downstairs?
2: Yes. Yeah, so they never abandoned the building, but by the 1950s they were down here only.
3: Uh, there's something very symbolic, of course, of about having the museum down on this level. It's a great place to start because, again, it's just amazing to imagine that there are many decades that people gathered here and there was this gigantic space upstairs and no one ever went inside of it.
2: Yeah, it's amazing to think that for decades, there was a congregation praying down here while directly over their heads. Plaster was crumbling, stained glass window was falling in, birds were flying around. Uh, time was, was kind of marching on upstairs while this congregation really held on to their traditions down on the lower level.
0: When we left off the story, uh, it was the 1950s, the congregation had moved down here. Um, What happened next?
2: It continued in that way for decades with the congregation down here, the Lower East Side continuing to change, continuing to become less and less Jewish as time went on while this congregation really held on to this small building or the small space within this building that they still had. Uh, It wasn't until the late 1970s when a group of preservationists on the Lower East Side began to feel that the loss of Jewish character and Jewish culture on the Lower East Side was really troubling and and actually dangerous to the cultural heritage of the city. Uh, And they began to preserve and be interested in all of these types of sites all over the neighborhood. Uh, A NYU professor by the name of Gerard Wolf he heard, had heard that there was a sanctuary that was kind of lost and locked to time. Mm. and um, But he
0: had never been up there. He had
2: never been here. Uh, it was It was kind of legend almost. And what he did was actually come down to the building. He struck up a friendship with the caretaker at the time. And he was able to convince the caretaker to let him inside the sanctuary doors, a place that had been, again, locked for decades at the time. And I'm afraid to ask, what did he find? Well, before he could even find anything, they actually had to take a crowbar to the doors upstairs because they had been so warped due to weather and things like that. When they finally got inside, what they found was a space that was incredibly deteriorated, but very haunting. Birds flying around that had come in through holes in the ceiling, stained glass fallen in and lying on the ground, prayer books open on the benches as if people had just kind of gotten up and walked away.
0: Almost spooky.
2: A little spooky, yeah. Um, and from another world, almost. But it was immediately obvious what a special place this was.
3: I can't imagine like the thoughts that went through his head when he first saw this. But in another way, this wasn't exactly an Unknown discovery in the Lower East Side because, for instance, just um, a decade later, the building that would become the basis of the Tenement Museum Mm -hmm. would also be discovered. Was also pretty much a sealed-up building that had preserved time, even to this day, which is kind of startling given New York and the real estate scene. There are still like random spaces, theaters, like Mm -hmm. places like that that are still kind of like trapped in time, very, very damaged. You know, he didn't think let's not. Let's just not do anything about this. It's too late. We might as well just tear this down. That's not what he thought at all. He thought the opposite.
2: Yeah, it's amazing to me when I see the photos of how damaged the sanctuary was and, and how far it had come in disrepair. I cannot believe that someone ever thought that it could look the way it does today, that they could ever restore it. But there was real vision there, and they did it. It, it really is such a testament to the beauty and the grandeur of this place when it first opened. Opened, um, and it's really inspiring that they they saw how valuable a restored space like this would be to the neighborhood and to the city.
0: And you even have an entire book uh, that I mentioned earlier in the show, behind the facade. Uh, the details that preservation effort.
2: Yeah, it's a remarkable story. It took 20 years and $20 million. Ugh. Just countless artisans who did the documentation and the research and then the work to actually, in most cases, hand-restore so many of the decorative elements of the space. And it's just, it's, it's a really amazing story. So when we go
0: upstairs today, we're going to see the sanctuary
2: as worshippers would have
0: seen it when it opened in 1887?
2: Well, that's an interesting question, and we'll talk more about that because there are uh, some design changes that happened over time, and as preservationists and restorers, we had to make some choices about what do you restore, what period of significance are you talking about? So there are elements that we didn't take straight back to 1887 for very good reason, and we'll talk about that.
0: But this space reopened in 2007 and is and you you're operating it as the Museum at Eldridge Street. And what is your mission as a museum?
2: So, we were doing tours and concerts and programs during restoration actually with scaffolding and dust all over the floors upstairs, but in 2007 is when we officially became the Museum at Eldridge Street with a restored sanctuary. And so now we tell the story of Jewish immigration on the Lower East Side. We talk about cultural continuity. We talk about the fact that this building is now in Chinatown and what that means for New York immigration patterns. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we tell the history of the building itself, the architectural history and those preservation choices that we made along the way.
0: Can we head upstairs and check out the sanctuary? Let's do it. We're heading over to a wooden staircase with a beautiful carved banister. This is
2: the original staircase from 1887. Okay. We're headed into the vestibule here. Um, So this is where the original congregants would have entered the building through major uh, grand staircases outside. The men would have come straight in to this level here, and the women would have continued going upstairs with the children to the second floor balcony. So all the children would go upstairs? All the children. So the balcony was a little bit more of a social space than the downstairs area would have been. The women would have been up there with the kids, probably doing a lot of parenting.
0: <laughs> so, so we're standing in this vestibule, and there are doors open to the sanctuary with stained glass windows. Can we head in? Let's head in we're stepping in and we're, we're noticing all of those rows of wooden pews that are facing east mm-hmm. uh, facing the the ark with the torah on the wall underneath a giant stained glass window and a huge chandelier and the balcony is wrapping around above us in the middle of the room is a raised platform with a carved wood banister as well from which the torah would be read
2: that's right yeah that's the bima hmm Um, So that's where most of the action of a service would have taken place. This congregation actually didn't have a rabbi for the most part. They had a cantor who would stand up at the front by that ark that you were mentioning, and they would sing, and then the Torah would be read from the middle of the space in the bima there.
0: As we mentioned earlier in the show, the the floors, even when you look down, you can see it. they're, They're so uneven.
2: Yeah. So those would not have been like that in 1887. And this is one of those preservation decisions that we were talking about. So the congregation, when they were deciding what materials to use when they built the space, they used a hierarchy. What was most important got the most money put towards it. And what was less important, they saved a little money on. So the floors are pine. Not as important an element in the space as some of the other wooden pieces.
0: It's an inexpensive wood.
2: It's an inexpensive wood and it's a soft wood. Mm -hmm. So over the years, that's really affected the way that this floor looks. So if you look along the floors here and you run your foot or you just get the light right, you'll see that there is a deep groove in the floor in front of every single bench and that is from decades of men standing in this space, and they do this thing when they pray called shuckling, where they move back and forth on their feet. Kind of rocking. Kind of rocking. And from decades of doing that, we have these deep grooves in the floor. So it's their literal mm-hmm. footprints. I feel it, like, Greg. You can actually feel feel that right there.
3: Undulating the old wood.
2: And so when we were restoring this building... Rather than take it back to 1887 and straighten out all these grooves, we left them just as is to show that mark of time.
0: It's almost interactive.
2: <laughs> exactly.
3: <laughs> now, another interesting restoration decision that was made here, and one of my favorite aspects of the room, is this glorious chandelier. I um, The lighting in here is just, I mean, I hate to use the word heavenly, it is, but it has a, a, a very warm glow in this room. It does feel kind of... It almost feels like gaslight in a way, but of course, it's um, it's of course it's modern lighting.
2: Yes. So the chandelier that you see here, massive chandelier, lit of course by electricity now, but very delicate. These etched glass lampshades, but that is original to 1887. So in 1887,
0: Did you say it is original. It
2: is original to 1887. But There's of course, lampshades. the lampshades, <laughs> the brass chandelier. However, of course, it would have been lit by gas. So in 1887, this was blazing in the sanctuary with fire. The congregation actually electrified the space very early on for most public spaces, and they were incredibly proud of that. But they were not ready to lose this beautiful chandelier. And so rather than get a new one, they just rewired it for electricity. They turned the lampshades down so that rather than the flames facing upwards, they now had electric bulbs blazing down onto the people sitting below.
0: And there are electric light bulbs, obviously, today all over the sanctuary, Um, but I'm seeing some old-timey Edison-style light bulbs up around uh, the ark that we talked about before on the eastern wall. It looks like they're surrounding the, what, two tablets with the Ten Commandments?
2: Yeah, so that's another later addition, another thing that's not from 1887, that ring of exposed light bulbs looks a little bit like something you might see in an old subway station like the city hall station. Or a trendy bar. Or a trendy bar. But that is another example of how proud the congregation was of their electric lighting. They wanted to celebrate the fact that they were a congregation that was modern enough and had enough means to do something like put in electricity. And so they did that as a way to highlight that fact.
3: Could you describe for us... The stained glass windows that are around here. Now, I mean, if you are, if our listeners are, of course, familiar with like a, a Christian church, a Catholic church, and those windows, they may be quite surprised to see the kind of uniform, symmetrical, abstract design that is that is featured in these windows.
2: Yeah, they look almost a little modern, don't they? They're Mm -hmm. so geometric. Mm -hmm. But that is because in Judaism, you can't show figures like you do in a Christian church. That is part of the rules against idolatry so rather than show any representative figures you have to go with these more basic geometric shapes so everything that you see here in stained glass um, aside from the huge eastern stained glass window here and she's chelsea's
0: pointing up to the eastern wall above the arc there's an enormous it looks about the same size as the rose window in blue
2: Aside from that massive stained glass window there, everything else is original to 1887. Wow. Cool. And actually 85% of the actual glass in the windows is original to 1887.
3: So these windows were actually intact or at least like intact enough so that they could then properly repair it?
2: In a lot of cases, they were not intact, but they had actually fallen in to the mm. building rather than out. So in many cases, uh, if, if a stained glass panel had been completely blown out of the window, we were actually able to pick the glass up off the ground wow. and then re it, clean it, and restore it into the panel. Even if a stained glass window had been intact, it was taken apart, reletted, and then put back into the window.
3: Now, in context of all of what you said in terms of, of researching and trying to get things back to maybe how it used to look, I, that may be a little bit in contrast to the east window, which it can't help but just draw your eye. I mean, there's so many beautiful aspects of this room, but I think that that's one of the first things that draws your eye. Could we go upstairs, actually, to the balcony and take a closer look?
2: Yeah, that's the best view.
3: All right. We're heading back out into the
0: vestibule, and there's another beautiful wooden staircase and stars of David carved into the banister. And we're stepping out onto
3: the women's balcony. And this is a balcony that wraps around the edge of the sanctuary, and this would have been where the women would have come to worship.
2: Yes, the women would have been up here with all of the children.
0: Maybe some of the the older boys could have stayed downstairs?
2: Yes, I believe that if the boys would have been bar mitzvah, then they would have been downstairs mm. carrying on their adult lives. But all the kids would have been up here with the ladies. The kind of romper room. It, it would have been a little social up here. Um, it would have been a very serious situation down on the lower level. But of course, the women were up here parenting. They might have also been socializing a little bit. I've heard some stories of the women leaning over the balcony and kind of picking out the boys they thought were cute. So <laughs> it was that kind of place. And, and services could be very long. Exactly. So you would need to get a little socializing in. <laughs> now, right ahead of us is
3: that dramatic eastern window. It is, It is in six sections emanating from a Jewish star. Each of those sections is just a very many beautiful shades of blue. I would almost describe it as aqua and covered with many stars. This is not what that window looked like in the 1880s.
2: So that's not the original window from 1887. In 1887, it would have been a historic rose window. Uh, in the 1940s, it was changed for economic reasons, to a simple glass block layout. Um, And then the museum made a further change in 2010 to restore the grandeur of that space. But being honest about the fact that it was looking new, we commissioned a brand new design by the artist Kiki Smith and an architect named Deborah Gans to represent the future of this space with a contemporary art piece.
3: So what's interesting about that window is it brings in a little bit of the modern, that accompanies the restoration of the original beauty of the synagogue, but there is actually one section up here on the balcony that is another interesting restoration choice, and that is to leave a part of the building as it was when it had deteriorated.
2: Yeah, let's go take a look.
0: Oh, it's up here on the balcony. Chelsea is walking us up to one of the the northern walls up in the, the women's balcony, and we're seeing exposed exposed wooden lath where plaster has just fallen
3: right off of it. I mean, I would even say that this is an entire space of like profound beauty, and you've left one little corner here looking all, just unfinished and ugly and deteriorated, essentially.
2: Yeah, so this is what a lot of the space would have looked like before restoration. With this panel here, we can get an idea of the level of deterioration in so much of the sanctuary. But we also get a chance to really peek inside the building. We see the layers of construction in a historic building like this. We're able to see the brick and then the lath, and then the plaster, and you can even see bits of horsehair that are binding the plaster, which was a popular way uh, of construction in the uh, late nineteenth century.
0: And just above it, where you have restored the wall, we're back to the sort of uh, the, the painted faux marble, which looks so realistic too. So it's it's really an incredible contrast.
2: It is, and it really shows the level of uh, preservation and artistry that our restorers were able to do here.
3: Now from this vantage, or I take that back, from pretty much any vantage in this place, the beauty is almost overwhelming you know i mean it is in many ways like akin to secular gilded age ideals right of the other spaces in the city was this truly the intention of the original congregation to basically astound you when you walked in and, and I guess to be a big contrast from what's happening out, out on the streets.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. They wanted it to be a bit like a tidal wave of beauty when you walked in. Uh, their lives were not easy. Living on the Lower East Side was typically dingy and dark. And so this was an architectural Sabbath for them. And designing the building to be this grand and this over the top was very purposeful. They wanted to show that even though they were the new immigrants in town, even though they were seen often as kind of un-American and overly foreign to the New York establishment. They wanted to show that they had made it and that they were capable of building something beautiful and grand, just like maybe a Christian church that people in New York were used to seeing. Mm
0: -hmm. And and also many of these people were coming from parts of the world where they couldn't congregate in beautiful spaces like this, where they were actually practicing their faith sort of hidden away.
2: Yeah, this is a real celebration of their new freedom. And they both incorporated their Jewish identity by putting Jewish stars everywhere, including on the top of finials outside, 50 feet up on the facade with American ideals of the Victorian era, things like this decorative paint all over everything. So they were figuring out ways to be Americans in this new life they had.
0: Can we just go back down to the main floor of the sanctuary for one final look before we leave?
2: Yeah, and I think before we leave, we have to get up close and personal with the Ark because it's one of the most magnificent pieces in the whole building. So we're heading back into the sanctuary,
0: right down the middle aisle. Chelsea's taking us right up to this intricately carved wooden ark.
2: Yes, so this is the ark, which is really just a very fancy cabinet for keeping your Torah scrolls. And inside this one, there was actually room for 24 Torah scrolls, which is a very large number
0: would they need uh, what why would you have space for 24 torahs
2: well this is the first time that eastern european jews on the lower east side could pray in as large a space as they could pray here so this congregation was made of many many smaller congregations and each one typically would have brought their torah over from eastern europe oh. so when they combined together all of a sudden they had 24 These are incredibly valuable and meaningful pieces, so you would not have gotten rid of them. You just needed to build an ark to hold them all.
3: What was the restoration work required to bring these back to their original condition?
2: So you can see how elaborately carved this ark is. It's a massive piece of walnut. Walnut is the most expensive wood used in this entire building. It's only used for the ark and the bima, the two most important pieces of the sanctuary here. And because it's a very expensive, very hard wood, these actually fared pretty well. So they needed a little bit of restoration work, but these look exactly like they would have in 1887. And they're in remarkably good shape. Um, Can we still open them up today? Oh, we can open them. Let's do it. Whoa. Sliding
0: the doors open, and there are one, two, three, four rows of red, what is that, crushed velvet?
2: Oh, that's velvet, and that's the original velvet from 1887. (laughs) No way. It is. Historic velvet. How did the velvet hold up so well? It is so well protected in this space, and that was by design. This ark was specifically built to hold Taurus scrolls, which are so, so valuable. And so the velvet just stayed in here uh, in remarkably good shape while the rest of the space deteriorated around it.
0: It's kind of like a miracle.
2: It, it is a little bit like a miracle. <laughs>
3: Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about some of the upcoming events that the museum will be hosting, especially as we're releasing this around the holidays? I know there's some stuff on the schedule.
2: Yeah, so actually where we're standing right now is exactly where a band will be on Christmas Day for our very popular Klez for Kids concerts. We do this every year. A band called Klezmerfest will come in and lead a family-friendly concert in this space. It's super, super fun. Um, It's the perfect opportunity for Jewish families or any family who needs something to do on Christmas to come down and have a really great time, and then you're already in Chinatown for your Chinese dinner.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's two for the price of one. Exactly.
3: For more information, you can check out EldridgeStreet.org. Thank you for giving us this wonderful tour of the synagogue, Chelsea. We greatly appreciate it.
2: Thank you so much. So good to have you guys here.
3: Bye bye.
0: Head to our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where we will have photos that we took inside the the museum, and we'll have more information on this and other structures in the neighborhood. A huge thank you to our patrons who have joined us on Patreon.com slash Bowery Boys with small monthly donations that really make it possible for us to produce this show.
3: Now, as we announced on our last show, we have a brand new patreon only podcast that is essentially stories that we didn't get to in in the regular show now i believe we called that and another thing mm-hmm. but tom and, and I, I expressed that yeah, i wasn't really pleased with that name yes and i was so, a little dissatisfied well and so thanks to a listener uh named torsten Kleins. From Cologne, Germany, actually. Thank you, Torsten. Uh, He has given us a brand new name that I think we're going to use for the show. Drumroll, please. Uh, We are now calling it The Takeout.
0: Like good takeout, you won't want to smell it the next day.
3: (laughs) No, it may have an expiration date, but it still tastes good. For this week's takeout on the Museum at Eldridge Street show, I will share a little bit more about the fate of another old synagogue in the Lower East Side that has very deep ties to the original congregation, which formed the Eldridge Street Synagogue, but is unfortunately, but unfortunately does not share the same fate as the place here on Eldridge Street.
0: We'll also be sharing audio that we had to cut from our wonderful trip to the synagogue, a little extra. And plus I'll I'll be waxing nostalgic with you Greg a little bit about our time in that neighborhood because we both lived for more than a decade just blocks yeah, yeah.
3: from the Eldridge Street synagogue Well Tom I didn't even tell you we we can talk about it on the uh, we'll talk about it on, on, the the, takeout? on the takeout I actually yesterday went around the Lower East Side and took photographs of all the remaining synagogues that are actually on the Lower East Side there's quite a, a number actually and many of them you're probably very familiar with so we'll we'll talk through that a little bit
0: And I walked around the Lower East Side um, listening, streaming the impeachment hearings. We will will not be talking about that. No, 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 absolutely
3: not. So to get the takeout, just join us at the $5 level um, at patreon.com/slash Bowery Boys. In addition, patrons at all levels will receive the Bowery Boys Movie Club, which is our celebration of New York City and the movies. And if you go over there and support the Bowery Boys and the things that we do, you'll be joining listeners like Oh, he's got a list of names. Roxana N and Srinivasa R. from Manhattan, Andrew P. from Brooklyn, Scott S. from Queens, Albert H. from Stony Brook, New York, Rob B. from Missouri, Andrew V. from Pennsylvania, and Rose S. from Florida. Thank you all for supporting what we do here on the Barry Boys. And we hope that the rest of you join us because we're really upgrading and developing the, our levels on there and creating a lot of brand new content that we think you'll enjoy. And there has been a lot of interest, by the way, Greg, in that new Bowery Boys sticker. Oh, yes. there's. Uh, we have actually <laughs> merch on there as well. Go to our page for more information on the sticker and the coffee mug.
0: <laughs> and also, we'd encourage you to head over to BoweryBoysWalks.com and, and join us and our fabulous tour guides in the streets as we explore New York history by foot. We should note, we have a wonderful Christmas in Old New York tour. It's happening several weekends in December. There are still a few spots left on that one, along with several other tours. So head over to BoweryBoysWalks.com for more information. And by the way, there's a coupon code on the homepage.
3: Thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.